As he stood, his pain was great, but his agony at the disemboweled world he now beheld could never be put right again was greater, nor could he bring himself to touch the eyes. He cried out in despair and waved his hands about before him. He could not see the face of his enemy, the architect of his darkness, the thief of his light. He could see the trampled dust of the street beneath him, a crazed jumble of men's boots. He could see his own mouth. When the prisoners were turned and marched away, his friends steadied him by the arm and led him along while the ground swung wildly underfoot. No one had ever seen such a thing. They spoke in awe. The red holes in his skull glowed like lamps, and there were deeper fire there than the demon that had sucked forth. They tried to put his back, his eyes back into the sockets with a spoon, but none could manage it, and the eyes dried on his cheeks like grapes, and the world grew dim and colorless and then vanished forever. What is that, Shakespeare, Sophocles, the Book of Judges? You know, Oedipus, uh... And Gloucester and King Lear, both are deprived of their eyesight and gain insight through it. Samson in the book of Judges has his eyes taken out by the Philistines and sees God more clearly than he had before when he loses his, his earthly sight. The passage I read sounds pretty King Jamesy, um, but it's actually a story um, about the Mexican Revolution told in Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Crossing. It's a little unclear what's happening here, actually, and the characters are unsure, uh, you know, whether to believe this story or not. Um, and uh, it may be implied that the architect of this man's darkness was Felix A. Summerfield, a, a German spy who has a kind of mysterious presence in the Mexican Revolution. And I guess to Cormac McCarthy's purposes, he was also questioned in the disappearance of uh, the writer Ambrose Bierce, somebody that uh, McCarthy draws on frequently. Um, so I don't know. But anyway, it's, a, it's definitely a, a shocking scene, but one that resonates so completely with uh, the literature of the past, where um, the removal of the eyes is an important literary uh, device and trope. I think the reason why uh, Billy, the young man in The Crossing, is, uh, is ambivalent about this story is that uh, in American literature, blindness may not have the same uh, significance as it has in, in classical literature or, in, or even in, in Shakespeare. In Oedipus, for instance, um, you know, the, Oedipus uh, has insight after he loses his sight. Like a lot of characters in Greek drama, he can only see inside after he can't see outside. But in American literature, um, explicitly after the age of Emerson and before that, there's a deep connection between sight and insight. We seem to believe that, that you see things, and after you see things, then you can process them. And, and I think that's a very American thing because, you know, the Puritans were looking for signs in the natural world of, uh, of God's will and intent. And if they were going to read the natural world like a book to see what they were supposed to do, then they needed keen eyesight. And so a lot of the characters in American literature are, are noted for their keen eyesight. Hawkeye, for instance, in the Leatherstockings tales. So Blindness is not the road to insight often in American literature. 
or maybe more directly, uh, the opposite is true. Keeping your eyes is the important thing. In McCarthy's Blood Meridian, uh, there are two uh, attempted deoculations uh, in the first several pages of the novel, and, and both characters are able to maintain their eyes. And what we're seeing there are fights in a tradition called the rough and tumble, which was a kind of backwoods style of fighting from the upper, uh, from the upper south, what used to be called the old southwest. It's kind of a boy named Sue kind of a fight, if you know the great Johnny Cash song, kicking and a gouging in the mud and the blood and the beer. There are a lot of people writing about about this tradition of of rough and tumble fighting, um, but most of them flow from. Uh, uh, an historian named Elliot Gorn, who wrote a great article called Gouge, Bite, Pull, Hair, and Scratch, The Social Significance of Fighting in the Southern Backcountry. And he defines the rough and tumble in this way. Around the beginning of the 19th century, men sought original labels for their brutal style of fighting. Rough and tumble, or simply gouging, gradually replaced boxing as the name for these contests. Before two bruisers attacked each other's, spectators might demand whether they proposed, proposed to fight fair according to Broughton's rules, which would be just like boxing in the English style, standing up in a ring with your dukes up, or rough and tumble. Honor dictated that all techniques be permitted except for a ban on weapons most men to choo choose to fight with no holtz barred, doing what they wished to each other without interference until one gave up or was incapacitated. And these fights um, were, were brutal. Um, uh, removing the eye from the, um, the opponent, Goran calls the sin quan non of manly achievement or some such thing. I don't know how many of you watched Deadwood. I, I, as much as I'm interested theoretically in violence and literature, I really, uh, you know, do not like to watch it on the screen and generally avoid it if I can. My students tease me that I teach them these grim novels where people kill each other in all kinds of horrible, intimate ways, um, and yet all I can watch on TV is British Baking and Kimmy Schmidt and things like that. But anyway, in Deadwood, there's this fight, and, it, and it's, it's incredibly graphic, uh, and uh, you, know, you may want to think twice about looking it, <laughs> looking it up. Uh, but anyway, there's a, there's a rough and tumble. They fight each other hand-to-hand, -hand, wrestling on the ground, trying to bite off each other's cheeks and ears and noses. And, and eventually, um, you know, Dan is able to remove the eyeball. Captain Turner, who is in, is screaming <laughs> with his eyeball dangling on his cheek. And and what's crazy about it is, is it's... Uh, it, 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 the Dan kills him in the end, and and probably wouldn't have in the rough and tumble. Probably would have ended at the uh, at the deoculation. But up until that point, it is a very, I think, historically accurate um, depiction of a rough and tumble based on the many of them that I've read in literature. One of the most famous depictions of the rough and tumble, actually, two of them come from a writer named Augustus Baldwin Longstreet. He was a a uh, university president, uh, uh, Methodist minister, and he was a popular writer for a while. He published a book called George's Scenes uh, in 1835, and, and he has a, 
a rough and tumble in one of his stories from it called The Fight. And the, the, the fight itself takes up most of the text. It's really interesting because the two, uh, the two main combatants, um, let, me, let me show you how they're described. In the younger days of the Republic, they're living in the country of, uh, you know, Georgia, where he's at, he doesn't mention the name. Two men who were admired on all hands to be the very best men in the country, which in the Georgia vocabulary means they could flog any other two men in the country. Each, through many a hard fight, fought battle, um, through many a hard-fought battle, had acquired a mastery of his own battalion, but they lived on opposite sides of the courthouse and in different battalions. Consequently, they were but seldom thrown together. Um, and anyway, the two men, Billy and Bob, were sort of posed for a fight. What's interesting to me in, in, in the fight, and they fight each other brutally, and they lay in bed for months to recover, and then they're friends at the end, which is, which is kind of an interesting thing, um, because, you know, Gorn, as well as Longstreet, suggests that the rough and tumble can restore, um, can mend, uh, you know, slights in the way that maybe the duel can too, that we talked about before. But what's really interesting to me is that um, there's a guy, a little fellow by the name of Ramsey Sniffle, a sprout of Richmond, who in his earlier days had fed copiously upon red clay and blackberries. The diet had given Ramsey a complexion that a corpse would have disdained to own. It's funny. Um, but, you know, the deal is that, that, that they're almost being forced into a kind of backwoods stereotype by this outsider from Virginia is the setup. And I think that's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting given Longstreet's position. He started telling these backwoods stories when he was in law school at Yale. And his northern audience really... Uh, liked it and so he sort of played it up for a northern audience and he was a very popular writer it's just that you know being a southerner um as uh you know as with a lot of other southern writers when we moved closer to the civil war uh you know the north became less and less interested in their texts and associated them more and more with uh you know all things bad about the south often justifiably i would say too you know, an interesting example of a of a writer whose uh, whose fame or infamy um, ebbed and flowed uh, throughout the time is Davy Crockett. Uh, you know, and Crockett's almanacs were a, a really important and popular text, and they really defined a sort of American vernacular literature that we were looking for at the time, um, notwithstanding their many problems. But you know, they were published from eighteen thirty five. Uh, when he left Washington uh, until 1852. And of course, he died in uh, you know 1836 at the Alamo. So he clearly didn't write all of them. And um, they were probably mostly written by Northern writers who often traded in Southern stereotypes without really sort of living or understanding the, the um, you know, complexities of the Southern customs that they were based on. That's not in any way, though, to like let Crockett or these texts off the hook, though. I mean, one historian called them a pornography of racism and violence, and I think that that's probably a pretty accurate depiction. Not surprisingly, in, in one of the almanacs, that, uh, you know, Crockett's skill in the deoculation game was noted as one of his chief virtues in, in one of the 
fights. He says, I got my thumbnail just into the corner of his eye. That started them both. One gave out a scandaliferous yell and jumped out of the break and run. As for the other, he's fighting two people. As for the other, I put his eye in my pocket and showed it to the audience when I made my last election speech. And then he says, uh, you know, that he's, in terms of taking out eyes, he's got great experience in that line. Kind of crazy. So, you know, as a, as a, uh, as a, indicator of his, uh, you know, fitness for office, he takes an eyeball out of his pocket and shows that he's the best in a rough and tumble. If you can take somebody's eyeball out in a fight, you can probably fight for us in Washington. Seems to be, seems to be the message there. One of the great things about Crockett's Almanac makes it interesting, had all these these illustrations in it. And the illustrations were crazy. They had like him riding alligators and doing all kinds of Western bragging, which is also a really, you know, important part of this tradition. But anyway, in the 1841 edition, there's a, a an illustration, rough and tumble in Georgetown, and it shows a scene of um, of the fight on election day in Georgetown in 1800. So you know, loyal podcast listeners know what uh, election day was all about. But anyway, in the center of the frame, there's just a, a brawl going on. There are all kinds of things in the air, some of which may be eyeballs. And uh, there's a, a guy upside down being thrown through the air. Everybody's fighting. It's just total mayhem. And then there's a character in the center who is possibly one of the politicians. He's the best dressed. He's the tallest. He's been sitting at a table that's knocked over. And he's got two opponents subdued at the same time, and he's got a, a thumb in each of their eyes. So both of these examples seem to suggest that if, uh, if dueling can be a vehicle for social advancement uh, in the South, for the hillbillies of the old Southwest, uh, eye gouging could also be a vehicle for social advancement, and the best politician was the best deoculator as well apparently one of the things that really interests me though about this all, all this despite all this eye gouging even crockett um uh it's a facility with language that is uh is thought to actually be the sin qua non of manly achievement or not just manly achievement achievement because women um demonstrating crockett's almanac a great facility with language too and women also fight in rough and tumbles in Crockett's Almanac, by the way, as they do in Carson McCullers' uh, great novel where she has Miss Amelia and Marvin Macy, her two main characters, uh, a man and a woman, fight each other to a horrific end. That's Ballad of the Sad Cafe, by the way, from 1951. Great novella. But even in that example, and I would say that in Southern literature in general, it's, a, it's, it's language uh, that defines these characters, not violence. So part of it is simply like backwoods boasting, like Mike Fink, you know, one of the, the famous Crockett characters, you know, he says, I'm a salt river roarer, I'm a ring-tailed squealer, I'm a regular screamer from the old Massasep. Whoop! I'm the very infant that refused his milk before his eyes were open and called out for a bottle of old rye. 
you know, and a lot of that is just kind of bragging. And it also, I, you know, I'm a salt tarried roarer. I'm a ring tailed squealer. There's a certain kind of cadence to that. That's, that's, uh, that's artful. Obviously you can't just say those words without, uh, without, uh, you know, singing them almost. Um, and then, you know, not incidentally in that same passage, he says, you know, that he can outrun, outjump, outshoot, outbrag, outdrink, and outfight, rough and tumble, no holtz barred, any man, both sides of the river from Pittsburgh to New Orleans and back to old St. Louis. Um, so anyway, that kind of bragging is, is a part of it, is a big part of it, but I, it's also the uh, inventiveness of the language and the made-up words that are important. In the 1835 edition of the Almanac, there's a story called Crockett's Daughters. And uh, Crockett's younger daughter, Thebine, is, uh, is described as the perfect infant prodigy. And uh, when she grins, she is splendiferous and has the most perfect internals. I don't know, like you can look down her throat and you can see that she's perfect inside. I don't know. It, it's very strange. But what's interesting is as that story plays out, she fights with a with a he-bar and she gin him a kick with her left fist in his digestions and he hugged the art instantaneously. And <laughs> so she, she beats up a bear. But then um, what she does is she grinned a streak of blue lightning and it's a it's an expression of language. So so you know she's a sort of like you know, whatever um, a, a physically imposing and tough, you know rough and tumble fighter. But her real virtue, as it's pronounced in the text, is that she's uh, good with language. So I'm not really sure what's going on, but there's some sort of connection there between. Uh, you know, orality and ocularity, I guess, I would want to say. I know that that's not quite exactly the right term. Vision, I guess, would be the term. But I like ocularity, so I'm going to stick with it. But, you know, uh, one of the things that, that critics talk about in these texts with these made-up words is that, uh, is that a person has to pronounce them in order to um, experience them. Uh, and, and this is the case with Twain. In Twain's preface to uh, Mark uh, to uh, Huck Finn, you know, he describes that the the characters are talking in an intentional way, and that the reader probably doesn't know that because the reader's probably not very intelligent. And it, it's an interesting gesture. It it puts the reader in the scene, and it asks the reader to look at the text, um, you know, from the inside rather than from the outside to look at the at the values of the community he's describing from their point of view. And, uh, and so I think there's something similar about that with the deoculation. I mean, you know, you're, you're in, in Greek theater, certainly, you know, you're, you're watching the play or in Deadwood, you're watching it. But in, but in these, you know, written texts, your eyes are making the text work. You're seeing the text, and you can either look away or you can look toward it. And just as you have to pronounce those words, you have to make the text happen, and you have to make it happen with your eyeballs. So these scenes in the text effectively like strike out the reader's eye. You're already self-conscious of your eyes when you're sitting there reading, and then they're plucked out, and you're, you look away from the text for a minute while you think about that. And as a technique, it's... Uh, 
amazingly effective and it, it must really strike to some really primal thing in us because it's an enduring thing in literature and again I think it has a slightly different um, uh, you know meaning in American literature where through this rough and tumble fighting it's considered in the terms of the people doing it a virtue to take it out to take out someone else's eye so anyway I don't know keep an eye out to make a bad pun for this theme in American literature. And I'll see you next week. Remember to like, follow, and subscribe. Tell your friends. And I uh, hope this didn't gross you out. <laughs> but it's super fascinating to me, so I wanted to share it.